Good morning, everyone. It's great to be together with you today. I want to say thank you to Peter and the team who uh, led us in that song in particular. I'm thankful that they spent the time to uh, get to know that song, but also I'm very thankful they didn't make us try and sing it. (laughs) That would have been kind of embarrassing to try and like, I told them that what they should have done is they should have had, you know, like the little dancing bubble over the words. You know, we should have had one of those going, but it would have been uh, slightly disastrous. So thankful for that. As we come to uh, Joshua chapter 2 today, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provides redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. God, this morning we do praise you for your mighty acts of deliverance. Lord, thank you for this passage here in the book of Joshua that so clearly shows us uh, your desire for all people, your desire, your heart for the nations. And Lord, the way that you provide a way of salvation, not just for the people of Israel, but for all people. Lord, thank you for recording, uh, making sure that this passage is recorded in Scripture for us. And we ask that as we look at this passage this morning that you would help us to see Jesus clearly, how he is the answer to the, the longings of this passage, that this passage leads us to see him more clearly. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, minister among us right now, that you would be here among us in a unique and special way, and that we would leave here changed people. And all God's people said, amen. Well, this Advent season, uh, these weeks leading up to Christmas, we are in a series called The Mothers of Jesus. And as we have uh, begun to lay out a little bit last week, we're looking at these five different women who are found in the genealogy of Jesus. And we need to just pause here and just recognize uh, that this was highly unusual for women to be in a genealogy in the ancient world. And what that clues us into is that Matthew is, in Matthew chapter 1, as he records these names, he's putting these women's names here on purpose. He's putting them here to draw attention to them. They would have jumped off the page at the original hearers and readers of this passage. And so this is, uh, he's drawing our minds and our attention to these women. And we just have to realize that as he tells us about Jesus, who he calls the Messiah, the Deliverer, he wants us to read about the birth of Jesus with the stories of these women in our minds. And the question is, why? So we've been trying to answer that question each week over uh, this Advent season. 
And each of these women, their lives contribute something uniquely to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And what we see specifically in this passage with Rahab is we see something of the scope of God's deliverance. That's one of the main sort of threads that runs through this passage. The unique contribution it makes is it shows us the wide scope of God's deliverance that he came to provide deliverance for all people. And I think there's part of us uh, that whether we would say it out loud or not, uh, intuitively sort of push backs against that, push, pushes back against that. I think we would, uh, many of us would look at our own lives and we would look at our own lives and we would say, you know, I feel, uh, I feel defiled. I feel broken. I see all the brokenness, the sin, uh, the idolatry that exists inside of my own life, the, the destruction that my choices have made. I see that and I, I feel defiled. I feel broken. I feel damaged. I feel ashamed about some of the things that I've done that I can't take back. I feel ashamed of the things that have been done to me. And if we're honest, we struggle to believe that God can even love us. I think the same thing is true as we look at others out in the world around us. We can uh, we would maybe never say this out loud, but we think there are some people who are just outside of the reach of God's grace. That there are some people that have just gone too far. The things that they believe, the things that they've done, the things that they do, they're just, just puts them beyond the reach of God's grace. And we struggle to believe that there are people uh, out there that are not beyond the reach of God's grace. And so what we need, because we're people who, who intuitively sort of struggle with this, What we need here today is to be reminded of the good news about what kind of deliverer Jesus is. And so we see that good news as we look at Joshua 2 and let uh, let it lead us to uh, see Jesus. So as we pick up the story here in Joshua chapter 2, here's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves on the edge of the promised land. It's hard to overestimate the importance of this moment in the life of God's people. And that's because God made a promise back in Genesis chapter 12 that he would uh, provide a heritage of children. He would provide many generations of descendants for a man named Abraham. And over the first five books of the Bible, we see God making good on that promise. But there's also another promise that's in there, and it's the promise that God is going to give those descendants a land. He's going to give them a place to call their own home. They're going to uh, have a land of their own. And so it's at this moment that God's people finally are on the edge of receiving the answer to that promise that God made. Now just think for a moment about how this must have felt for them. God had promised them that he's going to give them these generations of descendants and that he's going to provide them this land. And then after God made that promise, they spent, oh, about 430 years in slavery, living in someone else's land under a foreign ruler, oppressed and dehumanized and treated poorly, they spent 430 years in Egypt. And then when God finally did let them out, they spent, oh, about 40 years wandering the desert until that generation completely died off. And so after all of that, they are finally standing here on the doorstep of this land of promise that God was giving them. And so what they do is they send two spies into the land. And the first city that they encounter is a city named Jericho. And you can see from uh, this image here that the people would have been coming in from the right side or from the east side. And as they crossed over the Jordan River, the first major city that they would have encountered would have been the city of Jericho. And that's why they send these two spies into the land to sort of scope things out. And the first place they come to is Jericho. 
The text tells us in verse 1 that they enter the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. We need to just pause here for a moment and get a little bit of context to understand this. Because what this sounds like, uh, maybe the question you have in your mind is, why did these guys go to the house of a prostitute? That sounds kind of sketchy. <laughs> and we tend to think of Rahab's house as something of a brothel. Or like it's, you know, it, it's her single family home where she lives there by herself. And why in the world would these Israelite spies be going to a prostitute's house? Well, some historical context helps us understand this. Uh, in the ancient world, there were places uh, that were in, a lot of times overseen by people like Rahab. Uh, people of questionable character, but this was not a brothel. This was something more like a motel that was uh, over, overseen by somebody who had pretty sketchy character. So uh, there would be places in these cities that were something of a tavern, something of an inn or a motel where people who are traveling through can stay. And we know this is the case because when the king of Jericho goes to find out about these spies, the first person he goes to is Rahab and says, hey, where are these spies that came? So he, he knows that if, if these spies are coming into the land, if they don't belong here, if they're foreigners, well, of course they're going to stay at this little motel place that's for people who are traveling through. So they're not staying at a brothel. They're staying at some place that's more like a motel run by somebody of questionable character. So the spies are in the land. They are on the edge of the promised land. And this, is, this, this feels very good for the people of God. Standing just on the other side of the Jordan, ready to come in and take the land of Canaan, this feels very good to them. But let me tell you, the people of Jericho did not share the enthusiasm of the people of Israel at this moment. Because they know that they are next in line to fall. And so we see here that God's people are on the edge of the promised land, but the people of Jericho are living in fear of Israel's God. They're terrified. So the king of Jericho sends word to Rahab and says, hey, bring out those spies that were here. And she deceives him, which just take notice that this is a second story in the genealogy of Jesus of a woman who deceives someone. So she deceives the king and says, hey, you know, they actually left a while ago, but if you hurry up and go right now, you can probably send some people to catch up with them. So she lies to him, she deceives him, when in reality, she had taken them up onto the roof of her house and hid them underneath some big sort of bales, uh, some big stalks of flax. So she uh, diverts attention away from where these spies actually are and tells them to go chase after them down towards the, the area of the Jordan when she knows that they're not actually there. So everybody here is living in fear of the God of Israel as they should be, and we're told why that they're so afraid. So in verse 8, she says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and the earth below. So everybody's terrified, and they're terrified because they have heard the news about how God led his people out of Egypt. And what they know is that this ragtag group of untrained slave people did not in their own power overthrow the most prosperous, wealthy, militarily powerful nation on the planet in their own strength. 
That's just not what they did. It wasn't this little group of slaves that somehow overthrew Pharaoh's army. They knew that if they were led out of Egypt, it was by somebody else's strength. It was by the strength of their God. And she recounts how they know that God parted the waters of the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land. And as they're on their way up to the land of Canaan, they defeat Sihon and Og, these kings of the Amorites. And what they know is that as the people of Israel come into the land, they are the first stop. So they're going to get the full force, the full brunt of this army of Israel that may not be very capable or qualified, but they have a God who can dry the water so people can walk through on dry land. They know that they have that kind of God and they're terrified. And of course they should be. But notice that there is a qualitative difference between the fear that Rahab has and the fear that the rest of the people of Jericho have. The people who are living in Jericho are horrified. They're afraid and it leads them to utter despair. The text tells us, uh, you know, they didn't have, you know, all caps, they didn't have bold, they didn't have italicized uh, in the ancient world. So what you would do to get your point across is you'd repeat something over and over and over again. So five times in this text, it tells us that they were terrified. They were melting in fear. Their hearts had melted. So they're afraid and their fear leads them to be terrified. They don't know what to do. They're scrambling. But Rahab's fear was different. Rahab's fear led her to trust Israel's God. Do you see the difference? They were living in terror, but her fear, the same fear, led her not to despair, not to cry out to the king of Jericho or the gods of the Canaanite people. It led her to trust Israel's God. And we see that she trusted Israel's God because she demonstrated her loyalty to him by caring for, by protecting these spies that came into the land. That's how she demonstrated her faithfulness and her loyalty to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew people, was by caring for, by protecting the spies that were sent into the land. And Rahab risked her life here. Do you think that Rahab would not have been executed if it was found out that she was harboring the enemy? That she had abandoned her people? That she had defected from her people, that she had defected from the gods of the Canaanite people and was now casting her lot, so to speak, with the Hebrews. Do you think she wouldn't have been executed on the spot if that was found out about her? Certainly she would have. But what's really important for us to see here is that her choosing to demonstrate her faith and her loyalty to Yahweh by hiding these spies, this tells us something about the character of her faith. What we learn about Rahab is that she would rather be at odds with the king of Jericho than with the God of heaven and earth. And that's a pretty wise choice on her behalf, isn't it? So the people are living in fear. The people are living in terror because they know that the Israelite army is coming. She risked her life to hide the spies And because she did that, because she demonstrated her faithfulness to the Lord, what we see next is that she was delivered by the kindness of Yahweh. So this is the third sort of movement in the text where we see God's people standing on the edge of the promised land. We see the people of Jericho living in fear of Israel's God. And we see that Rahab here was delivered by the kindness of Yahweh. She says in verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. So she says, I did you guys a solid. 
okay? Uh, I, I, I did good to you guys. I showed my loyalty to you. Now, what are you gonna do in return for me? Do something uh, that demonstrates your loyalty to me as well because of what I've done for you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and you will spare the lives of my father and mother and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. And the spies give her their word that, yes, we will save you. And as the story continues, we read in Joshua chapter 6 that indeed they did spare her, and she was delivered by the kindness of Yahweh. We see something of the, the plan that they enact. We're told that she has this conversation with the spies, and she says, show loyalty to me, and they say, yes, we will make sure that you're taken care of. And the way that she's going to be delivered is that she's going to let them down out of this window. Now, remember that her house is uh, built into the wall of the city, so one of the exterior walls of her house is the wall of the city itself. So she lets them down out of the window, and then she's going to hang this scarlet cord. She's going to put this red piece of rope hanging outside of the window, and that's going to be a sign. It's going to be a distinguishing mark so that when the army of Israel comes through, they're going to know this is Rahab's house and this one doesn't get touched. Whoever's inside of this house is going to be spared. So just pay attention to that. The plan is there's going to be a distinctive marking that's put on the outside of the house and everyone who's on the inside is spared when the judgment of God comes on the city of Jericho. So, Here's the question. What does this all mean? Why does Matthew want us to read about the story of Jesus, read about the birth of this one called the Messiah, the Deliverer? Why does he want us to read about Jesus with this story in our minds? And I think part of the answer to this question is to see the ways that the story of Rahab is patterned after the Exodus. It's patterned after the Passover that we read about in the book of Exodus. Now, I'm not going to do a whole bunch of uh, recap. Uh, we did a sermon series in the book of Exodus earlier this year, so if you'd like to go catch up on some of those, you can, or re-listen. Uh, you can find those on our website, our podcast, uh, lots of different places. But let me just highlight uh, one thing in particular that shows us the connection between the Passover in the book of Exodus and the Passover in this passage. So, we read in the book of Exodus that God provides a way of salvation through judgment. God promises, he says to Moses, I'm going to bring these 10 acts of judgment on the Egyptians, and even as I do that, in the midst of all of that, I'm going to provide a way of deliverance. I'm going to provide a way of salvation for you. And so God does that through this thing that would look somewhat odd, strange to us. He tells them, you're going to kill a lamb, and you're going to take the blood of that lamb, and you're going to mop it all over your doorpost. And the house that has that marking on top of it, when the angel of death comes through, when God's judgment comes through to take the life of the firstborn, everyone who's gathered inside of that house that has that distinctive special marking is going to be passed over. When the judgment of God comes, the people who are inside of that house are going to be spared. Are you starting to see the connection between the book of Exodus and what happens here? A distinctive marking is put on the outside of the house, and everybody who's gathered inside is going to be spared when the judgment of God comes. 
So Joshua here, this text is telling us that what God is doing here is this is a second Passover. This is another Passover that God is doing, but this time for the Gentiles. In the first case, in in the Egyptian case, when God brought his people out of Egypt, it was primarily for the Hebrew people. Now we know that there were Egyptians and there were probably people from all over the known world at that time who were living in Egypt who came out in the Exodus with the people of Israel, with the Hebrew people. We know that because the text tells us that. But it was still primarily a deliverance for the Hebrew people. This deliverance in Joshua chapter 2 is exclusively for Gentiles. It's exclusively for people who are not a part of the family of Abraham, who are not a part of the the biological heritage of the Hebrew people. And so what the text is showing us is that God delights to do for the Gentiles the same exact kind of deliverance that he did for the Hebrew people. In other words, the Hebrew people, the family of Abraham, yes, they are the special people of God. Yes, they are God's chosen special possession, and yet that doesn't mean that they get special treatment God is still willing to bring about deliverance and salvation even for those who are not ethnically from the family of Abraham. And we know this because God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all people. And so what this passage shows us is that God delights to do for the Gentile people what he did for his people in the Exodus. And I think this is why Matthew wants this to be on our minds as we hear about the person of Jesus and what kind of savior he is. Matthew wants us to see and to recognize that God's desire is for all people to come to know him, to provide a way of salvation for all people. So in other words, those who are Gentiles, those who are not ethnically from the line of Abraham, they are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. The, the, the Gentiles are not like the weird uncle that you put up with at Thanksgiving because he's married to somebody that you like. We've all got someone like that in our family, don't we? We don't, God doesn't put up with the Gentiles. God loves those who are not a part of the family of Abraham. And he delights to bring his deliverance and his salvation through the people of Israel, through the Hebrews, to everybody else. And so this is, this is the point of this text, that God delights to extend deliverance. He delights to extend his salvation to anyone who gives their heart allegiance to him. Anyone who will give their heart's allegiance to him, not just give their mental assent, not just check the box of, oh, I believe this doctrine, I believe that doctrine, but who will give the allegiance of their heart to him. God delights to bring salvation and deliverance to those people. We see that it was true in the Exodus. We see that it was true with Rahab. And we know that it is true with us as well. And the specific way that God brings about his deliverance for us is patterned after what we see in the story of Rahab and what we see in the story of Exodus. In the midst of judgment, God makes a way of salvation. God makes a way of deliverance. So it's from this family tree that includes people like Tamar. It's from this family tree that includes people like Rahab that we see Generations come and generations go until we finally arrive at the person of Jesus, who is God's deliverer. And the crowning moment of Jesus' ministry is when he suffered and died. That looked like that was a complete failure. 
But what we see is that the crowning moment, the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry is when he suffered and died and he was treated unjustly and died as a criminal on a Roman cross. And what the cross shows us is both the judgment and the deliverance of God coming together and being expressed in, in the most clear way that it's ever been expressed in the entirety of Scripture. We see both the judgment and the deliverance of God coming together in the cross. It was at the cross that we were not just delivered in spite of the judgment of God, not, in, not just in spite of the justice of God coming on us for our sin. We were saved not just in spite of the judgment of God, but we were actually saved because of. We were saved through the judgment of God. In Jesus, the, God himself took on human flesh, accompanied us in our humanity, and as he hung on the cross, what happened was that God himself was absorbing the sting of our sin into himself. God himself was taking upon himself the full weight of the justice and the judgment of God for the sin that we have committed. And because Jesus was crushed under the weight of that, we have been given a way of deliverance. We have been given a way of salvation. And so anyone, those who would come to Jesus and would give their heart allegiance to him, what the Bible says is that for all of those who will come to him and will give their heart allegiance to him, God has given up his right to get even. God offers forgiveness. He offers reconciliation and restoration and healing and renewal. He offers all of that to anyone who will come to him and give their heart allegiance to him. And what that means is that we, like Rahab, can be grafted into the family of God because God made a way of salvation through judgment. What the cross shows us is just how far the lengths to which God will go to bring deliverance for his people. God did not have to do any of the things he did to rescue and to redeem us. He didn't have to do any of that. He was not compelled by anything except his overflowing, inexhaustible triune love. God didn't owe it to us to give us a way of salvation, to make a way for us to be made right with him. And think about this. We will never understand, if we were given a billion years to sit and do nothing but think about it, we would never even come close to scratching the surface of understanding the level of intimacy and relationship that existed, that exists between God the Father and God the Son. For all of eternity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in a perfect union of love and joy and community and relationship. We will never understand the relationship, the intimacy that exists between God the Father and God the Son. And what the cross shows us is that God was willing to crush his son for us. God was willing to endure the pain of the sin that we have committed so that we could be brought into the family of God, so that a way of deliverance could be made for us. And this is why Matthew wants us to see the birth of Jesus with someone like Rahab in our minds. This is what he wants us to see, is that God's heart is for all people to know him. God's heart is for every single person, every single kind of person to know him. And then the question that we're faced with is, who are the people that we have written off? As we think about God's desire for all people and all kinds of people, 
to come to be in relationship with him, who are the people that we have, maybe we would never say this out loud, but we've said, you know, there's just no hope for people like that. For people who have done these kind of things, for people who believe these kind of things, for people who hold this set of political views, this set of moral beliefs about this or that, this set of spiritual beliefs about this or that, there's just no hope for people like that. What are the conversations, what are the spiritual conversations we have avoided because we've said, what's the point? Do I really think this person, that their heart's gonna change? They're so stuck in what they believe, why would I even waste my time? And it's in those moments that the story of Rahab that confronts us. The story of Rahab reminds us that it's people like this who God welcomes into his family. And of course, when God invites someone into his family, he does so without any requirements of you need to jump through these hoops before you get here. But once you're in the family, there is no staying the same. These are the kind of people, Tamar, Rahab, people of questionable character, the people that we would write off are the kind of people that God welcomes into his family and the kind of people through whom God brings his deliverer into the world. And what this shows us is that there is no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. There is no one who has sinned enough, who has sinned so many times or who has done so many or a certain kind of bad thing to the point where God says, that's it, I've had it, I'm done with you. There is no more hope for you. You've just used your last chance. Rahab, in everything that she had done, she's, she's a Canaanite, she's a Gentile, she's a prostitute. She was not too dirty for God to love. God welcomed her into his family. Not because of anything she did, he provided the deliverance. And the text tells us in chapter 6, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men jo Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. She was welcomed into the family and she becomes a part of this covenant community, this covenant family that is being reshaped in life as God designed it. And so even Rahab was not too dirty for God to love. Friends, God delights to extend his deliverance and his salvation to anyone who will give their heart's allegiance to him. This is the kind of savior he is. This, is. this is why Matthew includes Rahab, is to show us Jesus is a savior for people like this. Anyone who will give their heart allegiance to him, Jesus will provide deliverance. And so the question for us today is, have you given your heart allegiance to Jesus? For many of us here, that is something that we have done maybe more times than we can count. And for others of us, we maybe need to put our heart allegiance in Jesus for the first time here today. But the offer is out there. The offer is extended. We have a God who delights to extend deliverance to anyone who will give their heart allegiance to him. And we get to respond to this by coming to the communion table where we get to receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus which reminds us in a tangible way we come out of our seats as a physical demonstration of our faith and we come forward and we receive the broken body and shed blood of Christ which demonstrates the moment when the justice of God, the judgment of God and the deliverance and the salvation of God came together. 
And Jesus was broken for us. And when we come forward, when we receive him at the table, we say, I trust, I believe. And we get to rehearse that. We get to practice that every single week. As we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to just pause for a moment of silent reflection and confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, both by the things that we have done and by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We ask, Lord, in your mercy that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.